Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I am your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally, and honestly, it's all because of my truly incredible guests. I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game, and they show up here wanting to help you get to where you want to be in life and in business. Now, these are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with us the essence of peak performance. And today I get to welcome back to the show an internationally recognized leader in health and performance performance education. It's Monday, Frank Forensich. Now, Frank earned his BA at Stanford University in human biology and neuroscience and has been teaching for over 30 years in martial art and health education. Now, Frank holds black belt rankings in karate and Aikido and has traveled to Africa on several occasions to study human origins, which I find fascinating, and the ancestral environment. And in 2012, he was named by Experience Life magazine as one of five, five, just count them, visionaries leading the charge to better health and a healthier world. So in Frank's new book, The Enemy is Never Wrong, Martial Art, Activism, and the Fight for a Functional Future, he says that a sense of martial artistry is essential for our survival. And gripped by confusion, fear, and outrage, we, need, we feel the need to act. But we don't even know what the fundamentals are, what to fight, who to fight, when to fight, how to fight, or even why to fight. So when we're awkward and impulsive, that makes us ineffective and a threat to ourselves and other. And that, that book is on my desk as we speak. Frank, welcome back to your partner in Success Radio. When you were here us just about a year ago, we discussed your book, Beware of False Tiger, Strategies and Antidotes for an Age of Stress. And I definitely want to touch back on that because in our virtual green just now, we were talking about what I have noticed for a long time is that the entire globe seems to be operating under what I can only call a low-level sense of dread. Things are a mess right now. So welcome. <laughs> On that note, welcome. Um, yes. Yeah, I'm, go. I'm <laughs> delighted it. to be back with you. This is this is very exciting to, to reconnect with you. Oh, thank you. I've got two of your books, and I wanted to touch back on Beware of False Tigers because that book, you ought to see it, Frank. I've got it. It's so marked. I don't mark books up. I think that's rude. But it's got sticky notes all over the place. So let's talk on that and then move on to what we're talking about today, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that book came into being with the realization that stress is really more than just an individual problem. And that's, that's how it's usually pitched, the standard narrative about stress. We say it's an individual problem with individual solutions. So you may be stressed, I may be stressed. And that's kind of the end of the conversation. We have remedies that we recommend, and that's all fine and good. But my 
insight, I suppose, is to say that you no know, stress is actually a shared social experience, and it's epidemic in the modern world. Stress is very much contagious. And we need to treat it that way. We need to look at the totality of the systems that we live in and look at why they are putting us under so much pressure. So I give some, some remedies, you might say, in that book. And it's a very exciting topic because stress lies right at the interface between mind and body, mind, body, and society. And when we dive deep into stress, we're likely to have some insights into these other domains as well. So it's a great topic, and I really enjoy working with it. One of my my best advice for stress, turn off the news. It's not news. It's propaganda. Turn that crap off, and that's all I've got to say. <laughs> well, that's the dilemma, right, because we want to be well-informed citizens. We have to get our information somewhere, and so much of it consists of these plastic narratives that are spoon-fed to us. And it's very difficult to walk that line between being informed and being massively stressed. So that's a skill in its own right in the modern world. It really is. And, you know, I, I know my news. I get my news. I do not get it from mainstream media in America. I have it for 12 years, and I refuse to turn that garbage back on. I just won't do it. That doesn't mean I am not very aware of what's going on in my world. I am. But I use critical thinking and I go find what I'm looking for and then I compare that to other things and then I come up with my own conclusions. I don't just take what's pablum spoon-fed to me. I refuse. You're a discriminating consumer of information. (laughs) I am. (laughs) And cranky about it too, can you tell? (laughs) Yeah, okay. Good. Yes, well, Well, stress is a fascinating subject, as I say, and that led me to the next book, The Enemy is Never Wrong, and this is my exploration of activism. And that that came out of the realization that here I was landing in adulthood and finding myself embroiled in conflict with various people, organizations, institutions, what have you, and realizing one day that, okay, conflict is a a feature of the modern world, of of the human experience. And the next question is, why was I never trained for this? Why did I not have an education in how to deal with conflict, how to fight skillfully? And that, that, I was kind of thunderstruck by that realization. It's like, Here's a fundamental part of the human experience. Why don't we teach one another? Well, why don't we? What, what have you found out? And you're right. I mean, listen, I don't think much of the American school system these days. When I was a kid, it was good. At least I thought it was good. But I'm realizing now that so many people are coming out of school. They can't read. They can't tell time. They don't have any common sense, as far as I can tell. And they don't know anything about true st- stress other than causing it. Mm-hmm. Do I sound cranky? I sound cranky. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, we're all cranky now, and that, that's, that's true. But the, the school system, I think, is, is failing in any number of ways. We don't have a unified narrative 
about what education is or should be. So that's, that's a fundamental problem. But as I see it, our, our education for conflict and fighting is so impoverished that if you look at a typical childhood in a typical family, mom said, don't fight. And dad said, don't lose. And that was it. Right. That was and our our martial boys education. Are not, right. Boys are not supposed to punch girls, but girls can punch them. Look, I was the oldest <laughs> of a bunch of kids. I learned right. both sides of that argument. <laughs> and I punch back, by the way. Right. And so we are, you might say, delusional. Of, we're in the grip of magical thinking about conflict because we think if we're just nice or if we tr- – if we train children simply to be nice, then there aren't going to be any problems. But this is simply not true. I mean, it's impossible to make your way in the modern social world or the world of business and commerce, any of this, without encountering conflict. So it's fundamental. It's essential that we have some training for this. And you don't see it in schools. You don't see it really in other educational environments except in the traditional martial arts. This is a place where we actually teach one another how to deal with conflict. And that's like this untapped source of wisdom in the modern world. So I was fortunate because I was able to train with some fantastic teachers in the traditional martial arts and get some insight on how I might deal with conflict. So I feel very fortunate in that. Now, Frank, I don't, I don't know much about martial arts. I really don't. So I may ask silly questions and feel free to just say, Denise, really? I'm cranky, though. Remember, I'm cranky. So <laughs> I mean, snarl. But what I do think I understand about martial arts is that you're not training to kill one another. You're training to deflect or you know, save yourself or even help somebody else. But the the goal is not to harm. Is that about right? Well, you have to understand that there's a huge diversity of teachers and styles in the martial art world. And so you have everything from street survival and, for example, women's self-defense, all the way up to the most mystical, spiritual approaches and everything in between. But you're right. Most teachers are going to emphasize skill. And that goes back deep into the, um, the culture of ancient China, ancient Japan, where skill was a fundamental focus in all of education. So you see traditional teachers saying, okay, let's be skillful in the way that we deal with hand-to-hand encounters in the dojo, the training studio. And then let's apply those metaphors to the larger world in our conflicts that we experience off the mat. And this is, this is what some people call big martial artistry. Take the lessons that you learn in hand-to-hand experience and apply them out in the bigger world. And that's what most martial art teachers are focused on. So it's a mindset. I mean, obviously, it's very physical. And obviously, there are things that, you know, skills that you need to really be paying attention to. But if I'm hearing you correctly, it's largely a mindset that you choose how you're going to operate within that mindset. Right. It's a mindset. It's a spirit set. It's a body set. Gotcha. That, um, 
it's a way to be and a way to live in the world. And so the, the title of the book, The Enemy is Never Wrong, simply encourages people to remain centered and not get emotionally wrapped up in the outrageous behavior of our enemies and our opponents and just simply say, okay, here's my opponent. He's behaving in this outrageous way, but I'm not going to get emotionally uh, frantic about that. I'm going to generate the best possible response. And it's simply a way to step back from the conflict and to respond in a way that's most appropriate in that setting. See, that makes sense to me. I mean, when you're in the middle of an argument, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whatever it is, I learned very, very young to just step back and observe. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to let anybody browbeat me into anything, but I'm also not going to take their, their garbage, if you will. But I found, and correct me if I'm wrong, I found that the quieter I get, the more it discombobulates people. They just don't know what to do. They want right. to fight, and, it, and I'm not giving it to them. <laughs> well, this is one of the, the lessons from Bruce Lee. Now, Bruce Lee, famous actor, you might say, in the world of film and cinema as an entertainer, and a lot of people were captivated by the, the quality of his movement. He became this sort of mythic figure for us, but he also had some, some very practical wisdom, and he encouraged people to be fluid and to be like water. That was his famous thing to say, that uh, water can flow, water can crash. Be like water, my friend. And that was a great teaching from him. So this is, this is typical of what we see in the traditional martial arts. Well, and that's a skill set, obviously, you know, and I love that. I don't think I've ever heard of that, you know, be like water. There's so many ways that water impacts us. I mean, we drink it, we live in it, we bathe in it, we, you know, we fight it to try not to drown. I mean, water, I think, is one of the most important, this world, maybe the most important things that populates this world. So take pointers yeah. from that. Right, right. You can get your um, your metaphors from from any number of ways, um, and of course, in the traditional martial arts, people make a distinction between hard styles and soft styles. So, in a hard style art, you learn to meet force with force, and off the mat, that would be considered, uh, for example, drawing boundaries. You say, "No, I'm not going to let you." invade my space. I'm not going to let you behave the way you're behaving, drawing boundaries. That's a good, solid tactic. That's a good, hard style response. And sometimes it's perfectly appropriate and sometimes it's very effective. But there's also the soft style approach. And this is where we learn to blend with whatever our opponent is doing to, you might say, get inside their movement and to follow along with it. And then once you are aligned with your opponent, then a small adjustment can change the trajectory of their movement and maybe take them off balance. And that soft style is really exciting and it's fun and it puts the emphasis on sensitivity. That's the skill there. 
So these two metaphors are always um, available to us, and the goal is to be ambidextrous. So, Frank, basically what I'm hearing here is that you have to be very fluid in your thinking. You have to be aware of your mindset and their mindset. And it's not all about getting physical with somebody. It's diving deep into who you are, figuring out who they are, and working those points to find a, a conclusion that is, right. or I don't even know if that's the right word, but to find a solution that is workable for both of you without going to jail. <laughs> right. And the traditional teachers will always say that the, the, the important thing is being centered in yourself, centered in your stance and your own integrity. And when you're strong you in, in your own integrity, then you're in a position to observe your opponent, to learn your opponent, to be sensitive to your opponent. And now you can generate a more effective response. So it begins within and it begins with having a, a solid stance that is also mobile. So you can be strong, you can be soft, and you can be anywhere in between. And that's, that's what we've trained for years on the, on the mat to achieve. So, again, I'm going to point to mindset. When you're on the mat, when you're learning these skills, I'm guessing that there is a huge amount of mindset that has to go with this. You're training yourself. You're teaching yourself. You're learning about yourself and potential opponents. You're learning, I'm thinking, about you know, your spirituality, about the bigger world. Am I missing right. anything? No, no. That, that's all totally correct. And, I mean, there's nothing that focuses your attention so effectively as having somebody swing a punch at your face. I mean, that yeah, is no kidding. all of a sudden now you have to learn about who you are and how you respond to the world. So of course, in a dojo, in a training environment, all that begins very slowly and we don't even start with punches. We start with grabs and learn, okay, how's my emotional body going to respond to this low level threat? And you get to see, okay, do I tighten up? Does my breath become shallow? What happens to me? Can I maintain my equanimity even when I'm being grabbed or pushed or pulled or punched? And you start out slow, and little by little, you get to learn who you are and how you respond. You become calmer and calmer and calmer as the threat escalates over time. And it produces some amazing results, especially in children. This is a story I hear over and over again, especially from moms who have a young child, maybe especially a boy who is maybe ADD or ADHD, whatever it is. He's jumping around and can't focus. So mom says, well, I'm going to take you to the local karate studio. And after a few months of that kind of disciplined training, the child learns how to focus, learns bow to the mat, step right, step left, punch now, give the, give the key I shout now. And it's an incredible transformation that we see in young people and in adults. So it really does work. I have long thought that kids, like when I was a child, there was no such thing as ADHD, none of this stuff. It just, if it existed, we never heard about it. 
and now every kid in their, you know, seems to be medicated, which I think is just the worst thing you can do to a child. What you're talking about makes perfect sense to me. Get them some structure, get their bodies moving, get their minds moving, and get them to tap into who they are. Right, and, and the physicality here is really important. What the people in the neuroscience world are starting to understand is that our cognition, our mental activity is embodied. It doesn't just take place in the brain. The entire body is involved. So if you change the way your body moves, you're going to change the content of your consciousness. And this is why the martial arts are so effective. It's also why sports training can be really effective as well, depending on how it's done. So, yeah, you've got to get the body in motion to make these things work. I have to ask you, I mean, I look around and, look, the whole globe, well, the the white countries, I don't even know how to say that, America, England, you know, countries that are predominantly, how do I want to say this, Frank, help me out. Not white, that's not what I'm looking for, but uh, more advanced, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. we have access to just about every crap you can put into your body. We're all fat. I'm not saying I am, but look around you, and I see. Listen, this gonna. This is so sad. I was in the grocery store not too long ago, and I saw a girl, little girl. She's probably eight or nine years old. She was slim. She was active. She had long, shiny hair. She was beautiful, and I was shocked because she stood out among all the chubby kids that were running around. She looked to my eyes perfectly normal. The chubby kids don't look normal to me. Right. And I think what you're talking about here is the industrialized world. That's, and, that's it. I'm right. sorry. I and, and what we put my finger on it. <laughs> and what we have done to our food supply is just well, it's criminal. I mean, we, we, yep. we start with the soil, we poison the soil, and then we industrialize the whole food production process to bring these food-like substances into our grocery stores and restaurants with the emphasis on convenience above all. And what's happened is that the, the distance between our experience of eating food and the source of the food has become so great that we don't even understand where food comes from anymore. I mean, a lot of people believe that food does come from the store and from a restaurant, and that distance really warps our understanding of what's going on. So we're eating things that aren't even properly called food anymore. And, of course, you're going to have changes in the body because of that. Well, and inflammation. I mean, look at the inflammation that our bodies go through. Look, if I make the mistake of eating anything white, pasta, rice, I instantly start sneezing. I know better. But I've always said this. When I go to my grocery store, my local grocery stores, there's only seven or eight of them in my state, Louisiana, and they're homegrown, and they, I mean, they've got fishing boats that go out 15 miles from me to the Gulf and bring back all kinds of fresh seafood. When I go in that store, I only go on the right-hand side of the store because that's where the organic foods, that's where the fresh foods are. If I want over to the left side of the store, the lighting changes, the flooring changes. It's now not wood. It's vinyl. All of those aisles are just loaded with very brightly colored boxes and cans and I'll tell anybody who will listen just lick the label that's about as much 
nutrition as you're going to get. <laughs> Seriously, get the pretty yeah. label. Lick that. Don't eat it. Just you know, stay away from that side unless you need cat litter or toilet paper. Stay away from that side of the store. Right, and that is always coupled with a um, a narrative drive that is uh, pumped into our brains constantly whereby food is considered to be entertainment now. And you uh. go, to, go to a sporting event and you get the nachos, you, you get whatever it is, food is entertainment, you can have fun with food. These, th- these messages uh, really distort our experience, our primal experience of just nourishing our bodies. So you might even say that this is a narrative crisis as well as a nutritional crisis good way to put it so back to you know when you take kids young young children and you put them into some kind of dojo or and i know there's a lot of different terms for it i'm guessing that they also are learning about what they really want to eat what feels good what doesn't feel good they're probably learning that by osmosis if they're not being taught that directly by their their instructors Right. And it's the same thing, martial arts or yoga or any of the physical disciplines. I think you just walk out of the training with a better appreciation of your body and a better understanding of what makes it work. So you know how you feel. You feel really good after one of these workouts. And it makes sense now to fuel yourself in a, in a way that's consistent with that. So it just increasing your awareness of your body has a big impact, too. So don't head for McDonald's, who, by the way, this is heading for bankruptcy, if, if I'm okay. understanding that correct. Yeah, I read an article yesterday that they're shutting everything, a lot of things down. I don't think anybody should. Look, when I'm out and about, I, it doesn't matter what time of the afternoon it is. It might be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Go by any drive through window. They're, cornered, they're around the corner. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, really? You've dinner is not too far away why are you over there yeah, <sighs> yeah. i okay. agree so so we yeah. have the, the nutritional challenge the food challenge and we've got you know another way i like to pitch this whole experience of being human I like to talk about the three circles of life support that surround us. And this makes it all very easy to understand. So you've got the body. And the first circle around the body is habitat. And the habitat is what gives us our air, our water, our food, and even a a sense of safety. And the second circle around us is our social environment the tribe, the community. And as hyper-social animals, that's also a life support system. That's fundamental to keeping us alive and keeping us happy. And then the third circle around us is what you might call narrative. And this is the story, the explanation, the meaning that's contained in culture. And that's also a life support system for humans. So the problem is right now we have dysfunctional relationships at all three of these levels. We have dysfunctional relationships with habitat. We have dysfunctional relationships with society and community. We have dysfunctional relationships with our sense of meaning and purpose. So we have a lot of work to do. And what I'd like to see is people focusing on those life support systems 
at the beginning. I mean, this should be fundamental part of our education and our medical establishment too. So that's where I put my focus. And listen, I completely understand you habitat. I mean, that's our home. That's our family. That's where we choose to live, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Tribe are people. I'm very careful about who I choose to be part of my tribe. They're not yeah. necessarily always family, to be honest. I mean, right, just because right. we're, we're related by blood doesn't mean we like each other, which is a shame, mm-hmm. but, you know, life is life. And then this is where I really wanted to dig a little bit deeper, your narrative and your culture and your meaning. Let's, talk, let's go a little bit deeper into that. Okay. Well, we are all we all grow up with a particular narrative that tells us who we are in the world, explains our, our position in the world and gives us some sense of meaning. And for native people, for indigenous people, that was fundamental. They always told a story of belonging to the cosmos and belonging to habitat. They identified with habitat. So for native people, they always say, I am the, land, the land is me. I'm the river, the river is me. I'm the forest, the forest is me. And so that identification gave people a sense of belonging. But now we have a different narrative. And the, the narrative we have now is that humans are somehow different, or maybe even superior to the rest of the world. And so that, that's a new idea. And it takes away from a sense of belonging now. And we grow up with a sense of we're different, we are alienated, we're isolated from the world. And that in turn leads to a lot of the stress that we're feeling. We are outsiders in the world. So we don't have a sense of comfort unless you get a narrative from some other source. When did this start? Do you oh, know? Well, Do you a, have any that's ideas? That's a great question. Some people point to the idea of uh, agriculture. Say, okay, when, when we had agriculture, our stories changed. We start to think of ourselves as masters of the land, and things really took a turn at that point. Or maybe it was the ancient Greeks, Greek philosophy, emphasizing the power of the mind and the unique position of humans. But then certainly with the scientific revolution, now we have this idea that humans are the only animals with consciousness and that we can be rational and we are separate and apart and above the world. So, Yeah, if you believe that, check out social media first thing in the morning. You'll get over (laughs) that idea real quick. (laughs) But, um, yeah, the the idea, uh, this separation, this alienation goes way back And we're all grappling with it now. We're looking for some kind of integrating ideas, some kind of unity and coherence with the world. And we're looking all around, trying to find that. So people look for it. Well, why aren't we looking from within? I mean, isn't that where we should start? Well, sure. And how we position ourselves through our daily lives, through our relationships with habitat and people and narrative, that's where we begin. And we construct that. We create that sense of unity with the world. And if you aren't actively involved in creating a sense of unity with the world, then you could be you could be effectively adrift in the cosmos. I've been watching, reading, listening to the Stoics and 
there's a lot to be learned from these people. Yes, I, I follow the Stoics and their their um, emphasis on doing the work. I mean, that's um, adjusting your mindset and working with reality as it presents itself. And in that sense, the Stoic philosophers have a lot in common with traditional martial arts. And that's, I was actually going to go there. I hadn't even thought of it until we started talking. Mm -hmm. So draw, draw a line there for us. Right. Well, I'm not a specialist in the Stoic philosophy, but as I understand it, it's, it's animated by a sense of acceptance and resolve and the belief that you can create your own reality to a certain extent by what you believe and how you behave. So that is 100% aligned with how martial art is taught. And it's, it's really a powerful idea. It is. And I have always, maybe it's because I've, just a bit pig-headed according to my mama, but I always figured I was large and in charge. You know, I was going to create my own. <laughs> I know. <laughs> she used to say when I woke up in the morning, oh, crap, the devil says she's awake. Oh, geez, now what? <laughs> but, you know, it's just I've always felt that I was in charge of who I am, how I behave, what I'm going to believe, and it's in flux all the time. You can't just pick a lane and stick with it. You have to be aware of who you are, what you're bringing to the world, what's important to you, and, you know, pivot. I hate that word. It's a COVID word, but you need to say, mm, maybe this is no longer working for me. Now what? But you have to be inside yourself, looking, touching, feeling. You know, look, I get God winks all the time. I know I'm not alone in this world. I don't believe for a moment that I'm alone in this world. Nice, nice. Yeah, this in the world of therapy, a lot of people are talking about this now where we grow up as children and a lot of us are taught and conditioned to be people pleasers. Be nice. Yeah, I never had that trouble. Oh, okay. Well, a lot, of us, <laughs> a lot of us are conditioned to be nice. And to it's not try my skills. Okay. Well, try and please the people around you. And this goes on for years and years. And then you wind up in adulthood with this habit of trying to make other people happy. And we lose sight of who we are in the process. So you you wake up one day in adulthood and you may not even understand who you are. You may not know your true self because you've spent a couple of decades or more pleasing other people so then all of a sudden you're you're faced with this question of who am i and then you have to construct that you have to create your own self and protect your own self and draw the boundaries and make sure you know who you are then you can make a contribution to the world but um it's a process and a lot of people have uh, you might say they they have kind of an amnesia about who they really are so. so that makes sense. That really does. And listen, we're busy. We're always running around. We're running from fire to fire. We're stomping out fires. We're eating garbage. Many of us are simply not drinking enough water. I mean, water is favorite beverage in the world. 
And I'm always so grateful when I, you know, open my tap and stick my face under there and drink water. I drink it straight. So many people don't have that. So it's something, you know, very much to be grateful for. But what I wanted to ask you, and I'm getting off of my own stream of thought here, is it ever too late to, you know, get involved in the martial arts? You know, are you ever too heavy or too old or too infirm? I'm going to go with no, but I can't wait to hear what you've got to say. Right. And no, it's it's never too late. Now, obviously, there there's going to be limitations. I mean, you're never going to look like Bruce Lee if, if you are late in life and you've never done anything like that. Um, and even for me, I've trained for many years and I can't do what I used to do. Nevertheless, most dojos and most traditional martial art teachers are very welcoming of everyone. And that is a unique environment because it's non-competitive and the idea is everybody is there for their own personal development. And the traditional teachers are really good about this. They say, come in, you start wherever you are and you just keep training. You just keep making progress at your own rate in your own way, as long as you follow the discipline of that particular style of that particular school, then you are welcome. And there's a million ways to modify the activity to make it more or less demanding. So maybe you're not doing high kicks and breaking boards or whatever it is, but there's plenty of movement that you can still do. And the reason I'm asking you this, Frank, because I saw an article yesterday when I was doing a little bit of poking around to see what we were going to talk about. And I found this lovely article about a 103-year-old woman who was teaching yoga from her mm-hmm. chair in a, <laughs> in a nursing home. Yeah. And I thought, well, good for you. I want to grow up to be her. <laughs> yeah. And you see, especially in Japan and China, you see plenty of senior citizens still doing the martial arts. I mean, they understand that this is a practice that maintains their vitality and it keeps them sharp. This is in Eastern culture, the body is still held to be important and something to be valued. It's something sacred. And that's why you you see people doing it throughout the lifespan. In San Francisco, in a town, you see it all the time, every morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I, I would stand and watch and go, gee, I wish I could do that. So then I thought, well, why can't I do it? <laughs> right. And, you know, something, I think in America, something happens to kids in middle school, and they, they, they suddenly become aware of their bodies, and they suddenly become extremely self-conscious about their body. Oh, I'm not tall enough. I'm too short. I, I'm too fat. I'm too thin. I don't look the right way. And then people start hiding out. They don't they become closeted, you might even say, about their bodies. And so we need to work in the opposite direction here. We need to create safe environments where everybody can flourish. And sometimes that happens in the world of sports. Sometimes that happens in the world of physical education, but not enough. I think the martial arts are really good at doing that. But see, the body that we have is the one that we live in. So why would you be ashamed of it? I mean, you know, I will, look, I'll catch myself passing the mirror and go, oh, man, you look like Hagrid today because I've got very curly hair and it's very humid here. And there's some days where I look like I'm wearing Hagrid's hair. So I go, you <laughs> well, know. 
I just laugh and tie it down, tie it up, pin it out of my face, and off I go. Well, you mentioned mirrors, and we could also mention cameras, because both of these are recent inventions. And prior to the widespread adoption of mirrors and cameras, people could go through basically your whole life and not know what you look like. Isn't Unless that you were looking in water, if you were looking down right. at a still stream or something, you had no clue. Yeah. And, and even then, it would just be a very momentary experience. But now we're inundated with mirrors and cameras, and so now we can obsess over how we look. And this is one reason I, I don't have mirrors in my house. I try not to use them. I, I'm really... Um, aware of that that impact that it has on my self-consciousness it's not a good Ah. thing it's not a good thing to have mirrors everywhere it's not a good thing for us to have cameras everywhere and and yet we persist in this so that this is one of the challenges of the modern world we uh i think that would be a good place to cut back well and listen cameras i agree with you i am incredibly camera phobic I have been since I was I used to think it was five but I realized not too long ago I was actually about 10 years old and there are no pictures of me in existence there are none of me on the internet I'm Mm -hmm. one of the few people you don't know what I look like and I don't care if you care it's just not your business you know I am who I am and I show up as me what I look like just is not important from my way of thinking Right. And one way I think about the smartphone and the social media apps is that these are, at at their core, these are comparison devices. And Mm. people post pictures of themselves, and now I can look at those pictures and I can say, well, how do I measure up against that picture? Do I look better? Do I look worse? Probably worse, because people tend to put up their best pictures. And so this contributes to this epidemic of depression and social isolation and anxiety, especially in young people, especially in young women. And it's, it's yeah. not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really not. And, you know, going back to kids and, you know, younger adults, if you will, this is a couple years back, but I remember I live in a very small neighborhood, and I remember hearing the school, school bus, you know, getting out there, you know, screeching there. Breaks in front of my house, so I stuck my head outside just to kind of see what was going on. And three kids—I'm still so very sad about this. Three tall kids. I'm guessing they were junior high, high school. They come slumping down the steps. They're not looking at one another. Their noses are buried in their phones. I don't know how they made it down the steps without hurting themselves. They wander down their lockstep, you know, down the street, and. They're not talking to one another. They're not making right. – they're, they're completely separate from one another. I'm not sure. I didn't tear up a little bit and think, oh, my God. They were slumped. They were stoop-shouldered. These kids are going to have dower, dowager humps, I can tell you right now. <laughs> right, and, right. Oh, you know, one girl, she might have been pretty. I don't know, but her hair was lank and kind of greasy looking. And I'm thinking, do your parents not see you? Yeah, Why aren't they yeah. helping you? Now, the the social media phone thing has has really taken a toll. And 
I keep going back to the body. I keep going back to communication between two human beings. It begins with the body, and it has always been based on the body. When you take the phone away and two people are having a conversation, the entire body is involved. It's not just the voice. It's not just the content of the message, it's the nonverbal elements that have a big say in the conversation. So if you take the body out of it, you're taking away 90% of the, um, of the content. And it's, it's a catastrophe for social relationships. So we, we really need to take that head on. And I've been in schools where they allow smartphone use in the classroom. It's, it's just a nightmare. I mean, we have to we have to put our foot down on this. Listen, I agree with you. And when you're talking with somebody, whether you're on the phone you know, or on the podcast as you and I are, listen, I'm leaning forward. I'm listening very carefully. I'm listening literally between the lines. I'm in some ways, I believe, touching you spiritually. But we don't sure. have that opportunity when we have phones in front of our faces all the time. Right. And in the world of therapy, people talk about something called the resonance circuit. And this is the idea that when you are in a face-to-face conversation with somebody, you look, you see their facial expressions, you see their posture, you hear the tone of voice, that goes into your brain and down into your guts via the vagus nerve. And in in your abdomen, you have a another nervous system, you might say, and that processes that whole experience. It allows you to run a simulation of what that person is experiencing, and that is highly emotional, even spiritual. So that, that experience, when that's taken away, you're taken away a lot. I agree with you, and let's go back to flight or fight. Because I don't know about you. In fact, I'm pretty sure you can do this, but you can tell when somebody does not have good thoughts. You can tell when somebody has, I'd call it an aura. I've never seen one. But when people have bad auras, when they have bad intentions, when they're just, when your gut is saying, get away from here, run, just go. Don't make apologies. Don't make excuses. Get the heck out of there. (laughs) Well, also from the world of therapy, people now are talking about the fact that we co-regulate one another. So everybody's got an autonomic nervous system, and it swings back and forth from fight, flight to rest and digest. And mm-hmm. that's, not a, that's not a standalone thing. So somebody comes into the room, their posture, their tone of voice can help you regulate your autonomic nervous system and swing it or bias it from one one side to the other. So we're constantly, it's totally contagious. And we are constantly moving people either more toward fight flight or more toward um, what we call feed and breed. And it's happening all the time when you're in a social setting. Well, it is, it really is. And I'm not out and about much because as everybody knows, I am a highly committed introvert, but when I'm out and about, it's interesting to me because I laugh about this, but I put on my, my baseball cap. I put on my huge Ray-Bans. I put on my resting bitch face, and I head out the door. That <laughs> face doesn't work. I'm going to tell you that right now. 
because people want to talk to me in parking lots and grocery stores. I never get back home without having a multiple really interesting conversations. But I guess people can tell that I'm not there to, you know, grab their last box of Cocoa Puffs out from underneath them. I'm just not. (laughs) You know, you're on the wrong side of the store. Go to the other side. But, but, you know, it's interesting because you can tell when you should be going, listen, I have been in my car and saw somebody standing on a street corner that I instantly went, oh, no, uh, 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 and I get away from them. You have to pay. The people say, oh, well, you can't make judgments. You darn well better make judgments. They keep you safe. Right. Yeah. And there's even some some evidence that criminals will target certain kinds of people based will, yeah. on based on their posture. And I, I think that's probably true. I, I don't think it's conscious, but I think people will evaluate others based on simply on how they're standing, how they're moving, what their face is doing, the tone of their voice. It's true. It is true. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, you've said this, we are 8 billion white belts and we have little to no training for conflict or activism, which is kind of what we've been talking. What's a white belt? What do you mean by that? Okay, in the traditional martial arts, you start with a a belt around your training uniform, and it's white. Um, And then what happens is that as you train over the weeks and months and years and even decades, the instruction is don't wash your belt. You wash your training uniform, but you don't wash your belt. So over time, it gets darker and darker and darker, and then it becomes a marker of seniority in the dojo. So eventually, it becomes black. It's just stained from use, and now you are a black belt, and now you are a senior member of the dojo. And so white belt signifies being a brand new beginner. That's that's all that that means. But the, the interesting thing is that as you become a black belt and a senior member, now the belt actually begins to fray on the edges and the white color is revealed and it eventually turns white again. And so that is that brings you full circle back around to what the Zen masters call the, the beginner's mind. And that's the beauty of that whole system. It's, it's, it's very circular in that way. So I had no idea. I honestly thought if I'd given it any thought that, you know, once you graduated from one <laughs> level to another, you just bought a different belt. Right. And that's how that's the modern sort of Americanized version of the martial arts to have your white, yellow, blue, green, brown, all the way up. And that is where you go out, you buy a new colored belt. But that's not the traditional way to do it. And see, when you were talking, I was thinking, man, that belt has got to stink. I mean, really, Uh, that's where my brain went. Yeah, I I have no idea. But uh, that is the, the metaphor, at least. Gotcha. Well, that makes perfect sense. So we've only got about 10 more minutes. So what is it that you want people to know how they can help themselves, how they can be of assistance to other people, how they can keep themselves and other people safe without causing constant conflict, which is what we're seeing in our world now. I mean, everything is a stinking conflict, it seems like. Right. And... Well, speaking of white belts, let's imagine that you 
have suddenly come to the realization that you are untrained and that you were not prepared to enter this world and deal with conflict. So where do you begin? Well, you start with curiosity and you start with question asking. So what is important to me? What are my values? And what kind of battles am I faced with? What kind of opponents am I fighting? What kind of battle is worth fighting? That's, that's a pivotal question, one that we rarely stop to ask. We do things impulsively. And we say, well, I'm fighting the, the, the person down the street because I don't like the way they look or whatever it is. And so we're bound to run into trouble. So we need, we need coaches. We need people who will help us sit down. Who are you fighting? Why are you fighting these people? What is your goal? What, is it, what would winning look like? What would losing look like? And all of these questions are foundational. If you don't do that work, then you're just going to launch into battle, and you might get lucky, but probably not. Probably not is right. Yeah. And I'm, I have your book in front of me, and you talk a lot about focus. Mm-hmm. And that's you know where you're talking about the case for martial artistry. And I'm going to go a little bit further in, and, and then you get really deep into focus. So if you don't mind, let's, let's go there, the journey to focus. Right. And this is what a lot of people now are using this word WASF, W-A-S-F. We I are highlighted so that, actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and this that's the pretty- one – that's the one place where I took a marker and marked up your book. That one <laughs> anagram, okay. I don't know and, what it is. And, and for people who are not familiar, this is really common in the world of environmentalism and conservation because a lot of environmentalists are given to look around at the world right now and look at all the all the insults to the natural world and all the damage to our life support system. And a lot of people now are saying, "Wasif, we are so effed. And that is obviously a prescription for depression and anxiety and everything else. It's an expression of, of resignation and defeat. Kind of like really. bar. Right, That's, right. You see that it, one It's very much like that. Right. So what I've done is recast that. I say, okay, look, we are so effed. Yes, you can look at it that way. You're having a bad day. That's the way the world looks. But let's recast that and say we are so focused. And the idea here is you look at the, at the challenges out in the world and use those as reminders to focus on the work. What is the battle you're fighting? Focus on that. Refocus again and again and again. And every time you are challenged by one of these uh, new reports that comes out or whatever it is, new evidence of the collapse of civilization, whatever it is, we are so focused. Use that as fuel. Use that as nutrition to bring yourself back into your work. And that's how I try and live. And it, it doesn't always work, but it helps a lot. Now, some days you just need to go outside and kick a tree and get it out of your system. <laughs> and I do it my poor tree. I have three pecan trees in the backyard, and there's one that I pick on. I'm not sure why. I guess it's because it's closest to me. It's like, hey, boom, here we go. But yeah, one yeah. of the things you say is is that the planet is on the brink. Activism is essential, 
and a life of relevance, and that's in quote marks, a life of relevance can be a cure for a mental health crisis, internal and external activism, and it's not enough to, again, in quote, be the change. I've always found that to be kind of a silly thing. Oh, let's be the change. Okay, but what? What are we changing? Why are we changing it? Who are you to tell me to change? I mean, I get a little testy about large comments like that. Right, and that goes back to Mahatma Gandhi, and he he was the one who coined that phrase, be the change you want to see in the world. And I think on the face of it, that's good advice. And it it puts the focus back on our own individual behavior and responsibility, and that's great. But it can also become a dodge. It can also become mm-hmm. a kind of denial. It says that, okay, well, I don't care about the outside world because I'm just going to be the change. I'm going to take care of my own life, and I'm not going to worry about anybody else. And that's no good either. So, you, yes, be the change you seek in the world, but you also have to get out and fight the battles that need to be fought. So you have to be an activist. I, a, a life of relevance is super important to our mental health and it's going to become unescapable in coming years. I mean, it, we are going to be forced into activism, whether we like it or not. And we better learn how because I um, agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Activism. That's not a word I, I like. It always makes me just go Bleh, because, you know, the people who claim to so many people who claim to be activists these days Honestly, Frank, I look at them and think, well, you're a blooming idiot. Did your mama <laughs> bounce you too hard on the floor when you were a baby? What the heck? <laughs> so, you know, there, there is that. But that's not what you're talking about. Right. And I think, yes, the, it, it, there's always a danger that the word will get overused and applied in too many circumstances. But I, I still find it valuable. And my my goal here, I think, is to normalize activism because a lot of people will will look at their own lives and say, well, activism is for passionate people. Activism is for a special kind of person. And I'm not that special kind of person. But really, activism is for everyone. Engagement with the world is for everyone. And exactly. And you, you, you can't hide out. No, not anymore. There's, there's just not an option anymore. So maybe engagement is a better word. And we, we could explore that. But um, some sort of dialogue and discourse with the world is essential. I agree with you. And when you say activism in that way, I understand it. I truly understand it. And we do have to find our own feeding, feeding foot, foot in the world. How, how do you, how do I want to say this? We have to find how we're going to show up. And then we have yes. to be pretty consistent about that. Find our own footing. There it is. There's the word. Frank, we're just about out of time. Where can people find you and where can they find your books? Oh, it's easy. The The website is exuberantanimal.com, which is just like it sounds, E-X-U-B-E-R-A-N-T, animal. Or you could just do a search for the title of the book, The Enemy is Never Wrong, or Beware False Tigers. It's right there. And there's a lot more information on the website. There's videos and essays and lots of good stuff. So. Frank, before I let you go, is there anything else you wanted to say to the audience? 
Well, just yeah, I follow a writer out of the American Southwest. His name's Edward Abbey, and the way he's thought a lot about the he's no longer with us, but he wrote a lot about these issues. And the way he puts it, that when it comes right down to it, courage is the master virtue because courage makes everything else possible. And for me, that's become a real powerful life lesson. It's like, yeah, I can, I can act with courage and that's going to animate my life and move me forward. So that's, uh, I think, a good place to leave it. It is, and I just wrote that down. Thank you so much. I mean, I really appreciate you coming back on the show and sending me your book. And it's been wonderful speaking with you again. And the advice that you have shared with our audience, I think it's going to resonate. It's resonating with me. So before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes, Stitcher, Audible, Anywhere else you consume your business podcasts, the truth is you can't throw a stick on the internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So find us and take us along on your success journey and go find Frank. Frank, thank you again. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.